session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. But if you do call in today, I do have a special guest with me, so I ask that all questions be directed towards him and I uh, for the conversation we'll be having today. Um, and actually, the guest, let me just introduce you to him. He's someone I've known my whole life because he's my brother. I'll give you a little bit of background about him. He got his bachelor's degree, uh, I think in political science or something, from UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles. He then went to Columbia Law School and then also uh, came back to UCLA to go to business school at Anderson School of Business and from there went to Berkeley to do a PhD in economics. Um, and he's joining me today to talk about some of the issues related to the spread of information, the misinformation that can spread, and other ideas that can relate to some of the things he studied in economics. But let me just bring him on before I keep going on. Parham, thank you for joining me today. Uh, Fadi, thank you so much for uh, having your agent assistant invite me. It was a real uh, real honor. Yes, thank it was you. hard to get in touch with you. We're glad we got you on. But thank you for being here. Thank you. It's and great to be um, here. it is a very unique time for almost all of us as far as what's going on right now. And as I mentioned on my show Monday night, obviously I'm not someone who's going to be giving you the up-to-date newest news on the coronavirus. And also many people listen to the show after the fact, and the news is really changing on a daily, even sometimes hourly basis. So we won't be talking too much about the specific details of um, what is going on at the moment, but more about some of the concepts related to how the information is spreading, what people are doing, not doing, uh, the ways that it can be sometimes hard to really know what the truth, quote-unquote, is and what's going on and different things that can affect how people take in and spread the information uh, related to this. And it's interesting because even when I say take in and spread information, it's similar to the virus itself, which can be taken in and spread. And sometimes similar concepts can apply to both. So uh, I know you've studied a lot of uh, the economy or the research and economics on um, information spread and those things. So I'll let you start off with some of the concepts you wanted to, to bring about, and we'll start from there. So a uh, few things that you brought up that already are uh, interesting points. One is <clears throat> a lot of the, uh, the spread of the virus um, and some of the science around that, a lot of that can be uh, analogous things happen with the spread of ideas the spread of information. And as you mentioned also, the information is evolving and changing day by day, sometimes within a few hours. So anything we say today about that side of things um, may change tomorrow and a week from now. But the one thing that we do know, and that is important, regardless of what the information is, is how we process and take in information, um, what, we, um, what type of information spreads, what type of information is getting to people. And is that the best available evidence that people can have to make the appropriate decisions for themselves. And as we know, there are really, really significant network effects here. Mm -hmm. So uh, what we do, of course, affects our well-being and those around us, but we're very, very deeply affected by what others do. And there are many um, economic models of various sorts 
by which we see the benefit of something is enhanced or mitigated by what what others are doing. So a, a platform like Facebook, for example, is useful specifically because there are over 2.4 billion people on there. And so by being on that platform, we are connected to that many people. The, the benefit of being on that platform is just that. Same goes for something like uh, Uber. The fact that there are so many uh, drivers on that platform makes the platform useful. If there were a better platform somewhere with a better interface, but it were uh, not having as many users, not having a larger network, as, as large a network as Uber, it wouldn't be as useful. So here as well, the impact um, of, of our, our health, our well-being is very, very strongly impacted by the behavior of others. And so mm -hmm. just as much as we are responsible for um, doing our part to stop the spread of the disease, we are also very much responsible for what ideas we allow to spread, what, what information we choose to spread. And we are in a particularly vulnerable position now with respect to all of these things, because when people are fearful, mm -hmm. we are looking for very clear, decisive answers. We are, we are prone to look to certain things. And science, by its very nature, is always uncertain and evolving. And there's very few things in science that we could say with absolute conviction. And so often we see that the people that have the most information are those that are most cautious, mm -hmm. most circumspect about what they present. And those that speak with a level of decisiveness and a level of conviction are often spreading the misinformation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's actually... Um something you see a lot in science in general where the people who have um, the more knowledge are usually the ones that also are more cautious scientists rarely will say we have proven that this is definitely true because that's not the language of science it's about supporting evidence ideas this theory is the prevailing theory or there's evidence to support this theory whereas people that are oftentimes less scientific uh, and don't have as much knowledge are the ones that might say things, as you, you said, the way that might grab more attention. I know this for sure to be true. I guarantee you, if you do this, this will happen. And people like listen to that much more because it grabs your attention. Like you said, especially um, when times are uncertain, like right now, but really always there's uncertainty in certain things. We want that certainty from someone that we think somehow has the knowledge or has the truth that others don't know. And what I usually tell people is if someone gives you information like that, either they're trying to sell you the information or sell you something or sell themselves as in trying to become, you know, popular in some way, um, rarely is any kind of important guidance actually that clear cut in the way that people tend to want it to be. It would be nice if someone could think of, even when I talk about things on the show, uh, okay, if you do these three things, you'll never get divorced. I guarantee you can't get divorced if you do these three things. But there really isn't anything that can be that way. Uh, it would be nice to, and we can understand the desire to have that, but we have to be realistic and realize that that's not really the reality of the world, to have things be that simple and black and white. And so often the experts are going to be much more tentative in what they share, um, which might not be as reassuring, but it might be the reality. There is a lot of unknowing that we have to accept. That's uh, exactly right. And, and we often see also that um, there's this uh, principle called the curse of knowledge, which um, is that people who are experts in a particular field, mm -hmm. they have a deep, deep knowledge of, of, of something. And as a result of that deep, deep knowledge that often even more now um, leads to academics and experts becoming more siloed. 
So I think there's a lot of there's a lot of value in interdisciplinary work, particularly because it overcomes this problem. And as we mentioned earlier, a lot of the uh, the theories around the spread of ideas use theories around the spread of genes and the spread of viral infections to discuss the spread of ideas, the spread of information as well. So it's really important to be to be cross-disciplined in that way. But often, experts are so deeply steeped in the area that they are experts in that they lose touch and lose the the empathy needed to be able to present that information to someone who does not have that knowledge. Right. And it's a fundamental principle in psychology, the, this, this idea of the curse of knowledge. It's very difficult to imagine a world in which someone doesn't know what you know and to be able to articulate the information that you need in a way that's interesting, useful, insightful mm-hmm. for that person. And so we, we often see the most knowledgeable people, often really, really important, valuable information that exists in academic journals, in the halls of universities, in the minds of, of experts, that doesn't get spread to people that need it most. And on the other hand, you have people that are able to create very compelling, persuasive, interesting stories designed, designed to spread. Mm-hmm. So misinformation, the nice thing about misinformation is you can pick and choose a story that you know will be most spreadable. You can create a, a catchy headline or title that gets people's attention, that creates a little bit of mystery and intrigue so they want to click. You can do all of those things because you're free of facts. You don't have to rely on facts. The problem with being a scientist and trying to express things in a true way is that you are bound by what's true. You are bound by what the knowledge currently is. And that might not be a very compelling story. Mm -hmm. It might not be a clear answer. It might not be something that is entertaining or interesting. It is what it is. It's the facts. And so you're much more constrained. So it's up to each of us Mm -hmm. to make sure we, again, we're trying to stem the, the the spread of this, this infectious disease, this, this global pandemic, and we all have a responsibility around that. We're all practicing social distancing and all of the other things that have been recommended by uh, the CDC, the WHO, and other authorities that know far, far more than, than I know and, and that we know, um, and we'll rely on them continuously and, and not on us. But what we, what we do believe is important also is to make sure we are spreading that information, the information that's needed, that's useful. Again, because that can be as dangerous. Mm-hmm. As the spread of a virus. Well, and there, and yeah, it's, it's similar principles apply. And in this case, the spread of those ideas can contribute to the spread or the slowing down of the spread uh, of the, the virus and, and things like that. So one take home already is that this is always the case, that be aware that people who are very certain about things that are uncertain, which I know itself, it could be hard to know, they usually don't know what they're talking about. And it's kind of paradoxical. The people who are most confident, and even really they're being overconfident, are the ones that know the least. And so always this is the case, but especially when we are feeling anxious and uncertain. As uncertainty rises, we're looking for more certainty. So we're going to turn even more to someone, and we are even more susceptible and vulnerable. And again, even those words, again, apply to our immune system, to... Um, the the more stressed we are intellectually, emotionally, the more likely we are to take in pathogens, bacteria, viruses, but also to take in bad ideas because we're looking for that certainty. So we have to, in that way, shore up our own immune system of looking at information to be mindful that, okay, I want certainty. So it feels good that someone's telling me if you do these three things, you can't get coronavirus. Or if you do these four things, you can do that. Or it's all fake. And if you do this, you're going to be okay. Um, But we have to be aware of that desire for that and and be more mindful of what we we take in. Because as you said, it could be literally matters of life and death or uh, others' life and death, which we'll also talk about this idea that even if it doesn't affect you directly or you think it doesn't affect you directly, 
uh, what you should and shouldn't do. But just being aware of, as you said, also the way you're spreading information. And you and I are even on some group chats together where sometimes people are sending out. And there's a lot of these like feelers like, um, you know, um, I heard this from someone. What do you guys think? And they throw it out there. Or someone said this or someone was on a call with the military and they said their cousin was on that call and they said this and they're sending it out. And people are just, you know, it gets spread. And then you see that. I've seen some of the same ones copy-pasted from multiple people. And unfortunately, that makes people actually think it's more reliable. Like, oh, wait, I've heard this now from three different sources. That must mean it's true or more likely to be true. How would three different people um, share the same wrong information? It must be right. But as you were saying, it's the way that misinformation can spread in this way, unfortunately, is that it makes us feel like it's right when really it's not. And, and it is very dangerous. Yeah, and even... even um the, the conspiracy theories that have been out there um, that, that people are beginning to spread, it, you would think that it's a, it's a terrifying prospect, that there are some, some big, big forces out there. I don't even want to mention what those are because I don't want to give them even mm -hmm. validity here on the air. But many of them have been spread, and it gives us some sense of comfort even to know that there is some bigger force, um, even if it's nefarious, that is orchestrating what's going on because the idea that the world is can be subject to random events and this much uncertainty, which we feel now, mm -hmm. is alleviated when we have some bigger force or some bigger presence that is kind of commandeering the entire process. So while it would seem like these ideas are very frightening, in a way it serves people, maybe even unconsciously, that they get some sense of assurance and comfort that there is some order to what's going on, even if that order is, uh, is a presence that is sort of dominating what mm -hmm. we understand and what we see. Uh, the truth of the matter is often the world can be very, very unpredictable. The world can often be very, very uncertain. And we need to have a level of comfort with that. And comfort with that means intellectual honesty that says that, you know, there's some things that we just don't know and I have to be at peace with that. And this, I guess, touches on some psychological features mm -hmm. of the anxiety that that, that settles in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we we got to take a commercial break. We're going to continue discussion. You can join in if you'd like, 310-441-0555. But I'm here with my brother, Powerhome. We're going to keep talking about some of the issues related to the spread of information and what we can and can't do to help us in this process. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm joined by my brother, Parham Delacqui. We were talking about some uh, ideas related to the spread of information as we're also looking at the spread of this virus uh, around the world. Um, and of course, there's ways that what we do with spreading the information can affect how the virus spreads by what we do and don't do and who we listen to and don't listen to can have big impacts on this. And you mentioned something in the first segment about uh, when we don't feel as safe, uh, when our safety is threatened, and that can have big impacts on lots of aspects of what we do and how we approach things. In general, when we don't feel safe, um, there's a feeling of rejecting the unfamiliar, going back to the familiar, uh, going into kind of our, our cocoon. Even you can feel it. You think about it. if you're feeling like you're in a place where you could get sick or exposed, you're going to kind of maybe hold yourself in more, crouch, mm -hmm. be more afraid of what you yeah. touch, all those kinds of things. And that affects us emotionally and intellectually as well, where we're rejecting of lots of things. We go back to our familiar. Um, and I think this could relate to the way things are spread, that people look for something that feels comfortable for them, even if it's something scary, as you were saying before, like a, it could be a conspiracy theory or something really fearful, but they want to go back to what they're used to. 
And so that's why I was saying before, we have to challenge ourselves to be mindful of where we might go to by default, because that might not be the best place to be physically and emotionally. Uh, and we have to as always be aware of what, where we're going, what we're doing. Completely. And I think that problem is exacerbated with the advent of the internet, with social media, because those, um, the algorithms that these social media platforms have are often designed to personalize the content that we receive. And personalizing it means it's, it's feeding you back the things that are already aligned with what you currently believe. And so we end up in these, what they're called echo chambers, where if you have even, let's say, a slight more liberal stance, you're going to continuously get more and more liberal information. And generally, this tends to go towards more extreme viewpoints. And that could go in either direction, of course. Mm -hmm. um, so what you end up receiving is information that the goal of the AI software is to get engagement and to get your attention. And based on how you, what information you click on and where you hover and where you go, it's going to continuously give you information that is aligned with those preferences and those things that you already believe. What you end up receiving will be information that simply begins to exaggerate that. So what will come in the platforms will be things that are, even if they're wrong, even if they are extreme, it's giving you a sense of comfort because comfort builds engagement. The more comfortable something is to you, the more it's aligned with what you already believe, the less cognitive dissonance you will experience, which is what happens when you get something that challenges that. Mm -hmm. So let's say you have a a worldview that the free market will solve all issues that we have. I'm a libertarian mindset. And now we're confronting something that is a big, massive collective action problem that requires government and it requires some level of, of, of a unifying force and decisive quick action. Now, even if you understand that the free market may not be the best solution to that problem, it'll be difficult for you to completely recalibrate your worldview and, and see things in a new way that has been misaligned with everything you've ever believed. And what the algorithms will do, the information that we receive in the past, we all generally received information from a few credible sources. Some level of journalistic integrity was embedded in what we were receiving. Now we are receiving information that is tailor-made for us, generally. Mm -hmm. People that have an uh, active presence on social media and on the internet, that's what the, um, the information that we receive generally is comprised of. And so it's really, really important that we take our own steps to, to understand, is there something that I need to, um, to evolve in my own mindset about this? Is mm -hmm. there something new that I need to look at? We should always, I think, challenge ourselves to be intellectually honest about things and not just give us ourselves the information that continues to reinforce what we already believe. Mm -hmm. Because what happens is even if people have a shred of doubt about that thing, what they're able to do now with four and a half billion people connected on the internet is find other people that are like-minded about almost any belief, even if it's a fringe belief. And what the AI software will continue to reinforce for you, whether you're on YouTube or Facebook or Instagram, are things that seem to reinforce with that same worldview. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, you know, last week I talked about open-mindedness and um, how everyone thinks they're open-minded, but really we're all just open-minded on things we think we should be open-minded on and everything else we just think we're right. And we don't think we should be open-minded. We think it's actually wrong to be open-minded. So uh, the same thing when you were talking, it's like ideologies can have that same feeling. And I actually made the analogy last week about the our 
intellectual or you can call it immune system when it comes to being open-minded of course you can't just be like oh that's true okay that's true whatever this person said and now with that person oh that's true and you don't take you're not skeptical at all but also you can be too rejecting too similar to the immune system it can let too much in which can be bad or it can even attack its own body which would be harmful so when we have ideologies that often makes people become too rigid in their thinking that they um think okay this is no this has to be right you know whatever it is capitalism or socialism or whatever their ideology is we cling to it very similar to how people cling to a religion that it's all right all the time for every situation it can't be wrong and so we don't want to even be open to the possibility that in general it might not be totally right or especially in a certain circumstance or situation it might not be right and we cling to that and we become very rigid in our thinking and that rigidity can have really negative effects in both what we think and feel and all that but also what we do individually and collectively because we get stuck in a certain way of this has to be the right way to do things and so open-mindedness is a it, everyone says they're open-minded i don't think i've ever heard someone say i'm so close-minded because we all think we are and sometimes it, it becomes apparent to us when we see someone who seems so close-minded describe themselves as open-minded that you think wait i have to think about that for myself what are the things i probably think i'm open-minded but there are probably ways that i'm also close-minded and think i'm open-minded and so we always have to be in that challenging ourselves being aware of ourselves not questioning ourselves in the way that we doubt ourselves but in that humble awareness of I'm human too, so I'm likely going to get stuck in these mental types of traps and uh, downfalls. I think that's really important, and I think it's fundamentally about um, some level of self-awareness. And we, in the research that they do, when they ask people, even the people that are ardent believers in, in, in let's say, conspiracy theories and lack of science, just about everyone across the board believes that this is a problem for others, mm -hmm. that others have this problem. They're too close-minded. Uh, they're too, uh, let's say, adherent to authorities. They're, they blindly listen to others. And they're the ones that finally have been able to uncover the truth. Mm -hmm. And so others are being closed-minded, but they're actually awakened. Right. They're awakened mm -hmm. to the truth. So the problem inherent in this is that I think there's fundamental lack of self-awareness in many, many ways. Even when, when it's those that are challenging all authorities and they're contrarians fundamentally in how they look at things, when you ask them that you know it's really important for you too to be self-aware and, and at least consider the opposing view and see if there's any merit in that, uh, they believe this is a problem for others. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think there's some, unfortunately, some philosophies, some mindsets that reinforce this even more strongly. So deep belief in sort of ideologies, let's, you know, some types of religious belief where you were just believing that this is, all of the answers exist in this one sort of set of, 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 of axioms or principles and everything else outside of that is false. Those tend to be even more self-perpetuating, where it leads to less open-mindedness, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Something like the scientific method at least seems to be, and others will challenge scientists, and scientists have their own problems, which we can, we can get into, why there's, there's issues there as well. Uh, one we mentioned already, which is the ability to communicate and share the ideas in an effective way. But it does have a self-correcting mechanism generally, in that science advances through peer review and through a process of, of trying to challenge things and never really believing that something is absolute truth um, definitively. And so there is sort of a self-correcting mechanism inherent in the scientific method versus maybe some ideological beliefs that seem to be sort of all-encompassing and excluding anything outside of that. Mm -hmm. Now, we've talked about this actually just a couple of days ago, but, but then within science, there's the ideologies that develop. So mm -hmm. scientific method might itself be inherently a good thing, but the... Um, scientists are human beings and they're going to have biases and 
ideologies and beliefs and their careers are t tied up in this. Their ego is tied into this theory being right and wrong and all those types of things. And actually, um, I'm reading Richard Thaler's book, Misbehaving, mm -hmm. which is uh, in a way about the history uh, to some degree of behavioral economics, which was this big shift in economic thinking away from the traditional economic thinking that had some assumptions such that for example, every person is rationally making decisions, uh, homo economicus, or the, the mindset that humans are making the best decisions. Mm -hmm. And then lots of research and also just evidence of real life showing that that wasn't the case. And it took so long for, and still there's people challenging, that incorporating this behavioral side, which includes psychology, into the economics, research, and theories and understandings, we still see people resisting that. So again, it goes back to this type of open-mindedness immune system where people are uh, being so closed-minded because you have your biases, because um, you know it could mean, like even one of the, he was talking about in the book, someone stood up and said, well, if you're right, then what am I doing? Like basically all of his work and research would be, he, would, he thought it was just like fake or, you know, meaningless and so how could he accept that we could understand the resistance to accepting an idea means everything you've done and believed in has been wrong and so i think that's why it's important to have um, a certain level of if you want to call it intellectual humility that comes with open-mindedness meaning that i can be wrong holding on to that and i know it's it can be tough to have that because we like to feel right everyone i like to feel right it feels good um but accepting that that clinging to that at least a little bit. I think I'm right. I, this is how I understand things, but I can be wrong. And that also comes back to, to me, this human uh, ability to recognize we're all flawed. So or even flawed in the ways we think about things. I can be wrong. It doesn't mean I'm stupid if I'm wrong. But I think for a lot of people, even I see it a lot in, for example, the Persian mm -hmm. community, it's like you have to always be right and know everything or you're an idiot. So people think how I can't prove, uh, accept that I'm wrong. Even mm -hmm. in this small instance, I have to show a way that actually I was right. And so that makes us even more resistant. So when we think in this perfectionistic mindset that either you know everything or you know nothing, and even we look to people that way, oh, is that person smart? Oh, they didn't know this, so they're dumb. Well, then we don't actually allow the space for people to be as open because everything becomes kind of intellectual life or death. Like either you're smart or dumb, either you're always right or always wrong. And so of course you're going to resist anything that would imply you're making a mistake and it's going to make you less open-minded. This is great. I mean, I think that this touches on the, I love the analogy of the intellectual immune system where it's a you know, conflict between what we let in and what we don't let in. And I think uh, we often are very, very protective to not let anything in mm -hmm. that is a pathogen that appears that it's kind of contradicting or challenging what we already know. Um, a, a, you know, a, a kind of a blurb about this that people have mentioned is that it's very difficult to persuade someone to believe something that will empty their wallets. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if someone has invested, let's say, all of their time and energy into a certain way of thinking, let's say even an, an economist, a uh, scientist, and now there's a complete paradigm shift to the way they're supposed to view the world, it will be very difficult for them to accept that everything that they've done, their life's work, decades of work, let's say, it actually needs to be readjusted and adapted and evolved. Mm -hmm. And maybe some of it has been actually based on wrong, and f fundamentally incorrect principles. It'll be very difficult to persuade that person to, to reassess. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we all, I think, fight that in some ways, right? And because there is something unsettling about realizing that what you always believed maybe not is not entirely true. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very, it, it provokes a lot of anxiety. Yeah. Especially when it's fundamental things that we've always held to just taken for granted as true. Right. Well, I think that's the thing where at first the amount of importance you're putting in being right is 
but you have to be aware. So if like, I know I'm right. It's so good that I'm right. I'm better than others because I'm right about this. Then of course, there's a lot more at stake to be wrong or be wrong, partially wrong even. And so that's something to be aware of the way we think about ourselves intellectually and what we know and what, how, how good it makes us feel if we look down on others for not knowing and not being as enlightened and smart mm -hmm. as us. Then of course, there's a lot to lose if all of a sudden, oh, oh, wait, maybe I'm wrong. That means I'm part of the dumb and stupid and all that. When having more of a universal human mindset that we're all trying to understand things, know things, uh, ideas are changing. We learn from each other, growing that more humanistic way, I think, of approaching just knowledge and understanding will actually allow for us to be more open-minded and closer to objective. No one's going to ever be completely objective, but more objective. And even that, uh, I was, as you were talking, I was thinking, when you hear of an opposing idea, of course, you want to evaluate the information, but a question you can even ask yourself is, what would I lose if I accepted that person was right and I was wrong? Mm -hmm. yeah. Because it could be this, I was, yeah, my whole career would be, you know, at stake or could be brought to question. I would feel stupid. I would feel immoral. I would feel all sorts of things can come up for you. And you have to be aware that that greater that cost is that you would pay for acknowledging you were wrong, the harder it would be for you to genuinely evaluate the information in an objective way. Because of course the scales could be weighted in a certain direction. And we know human beings are incredible at justifying whatever they want to be true. I mean, in therapy, you see, but just in daily life, in politics, you sure. see people say things that are so outrageous yes. because they already have a belief, an emotional want that something is true. And they'll come up with the intellectual justification for just about anything, even as outlandish as it might seem, because they're holding on to some core idea. You know, you hear people that say that, <clears throat> you know, that person's a flip-flopper. He changed his mind. I believe this from 40 years ago and I haven't changed. If you've never changed your beliefs, if you're not evolving and seeking to grow and learn continuously, you're being intellectually shallow. I mean, mm -hmm. that, that is not the way that you live your life is to say that I've believed this forever and I'm never going to change. Now, as you said, there's an immune system here. So there's mm -hmm. some beliefs that we have a lot of evidence to support will probably continue to be true. I have a firm belief that tomorrow the sun will come up based on a lot of evidence and a lot of science and people that I've trusted that suggest to me that this is the case. There's other things that if I see, so there will need to be a lot of evidence to indicate to me that I need to change this view. But there are other things that perhaps I have less conviction about. And, and we, we have to, in all matters, be willing to change and evolve. And if every viewpoint that you have today is exactly what you believe one year from now, I think you're just blinding yourself mm -hmm. from information that needs to be taken in. That, that's all that is. It's not something that you should be proud of. Right. And oftentimes, it's like, as you said, it's very tied to ego. Mm -hmm. Is that I said this and I'm not going to change it because changing it means that I was wrong before. Right. And so first I have to, that's what, why I think at first you have to accept the things you know as kind of, you know them with a lowercase k, not like you mm -hmm. know it's like knowledge, it's capital T mm -hmm. truth, because that makes it easier to be open to it. And again, like we've mentioned a few times, it's not about, okay, I hear new information, I completely change everything I ever thought every time, because that level of being open actually can be detrimental to being able to actually think about something in a critical way to hold on to anything. But the other extreme of being too rigid also... Uh, is a problem. Let's go to another commercial break. I'm joined by my brother Powerhome. We are going to keep talking about these issues related to information, the spread of information. Uh, feel free to call in to join us in the conversation. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, I'm joined by my brother Parham. 
Um, and we're talking about some ideas related to information, how it's spreading, um, things we should try to pay more attention to, less attention to how it's affected by what's going on. And you've mentioned, we both talked about misinformation and how that's spreading a lot. And we hope that people would listen to the experts who are sharing valuable information that can have big impact on uh, saving lives and reducing the spread and the impact of, of the virus, things you mentioned, like the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, WHO, the World Health Organization. Um, these are experts that I hope will have faith in. Of course, they're going to get it wrong sometimes, but their intentions are good and they are more knowledgeable and, and experts in this area. I saw a funny post. It was something like... Um, a cartoon and the, the man was looking at his wife said, oh, it's funny, all my Facebook friends who last week were constitutional scholars are now infectious disease specialists, you know, so it's kind of like how everyone thinks they know what's going on. And I don't really obviously know, I don't understand how uh, viruses work uh, as well as the experts do. And so this is when we do want to turn to the people who are more knowledgeable. We've talked about how no one knows everything, but they know more. And so we have to go based on the best knowledge we have at this time. That's the only thing we can do in any field, any area. Uh, we never know the absolute truth, but we want to go to the closest we have to it at this time. And it, it sounds like, you know, with everything we've said, that we need to be continuously evolving, continuously learning what we know today will grow and evolve tomorrow and next year and 10 years from now. That's all true. But the best available information we have right now is extraordinarily powerful. Using the best available information we have right now can stem the tide of this, this infectious disease. Mm -hmm. It can save millions of lives. So following everything that we know right now, even if it's incomplete, even if this will change and evolve and grow and we'll be, there'll be more things that are added to that, following that based on all of the evidence that we have by leading experts around the world, because this, again, being a global pandemic, it's got the attention of people that have studied this for decades mm -hmm. who understand this in a deep way. Following those experts is extraordinarily powerful. And failing to follow those experts is extremely dangerous. Mm -hmm. And so the stakes are really, really high to not just say, well, you know, information is always changing. There are things we believed 100 years ago that are no longer true. Why should we believe this now? We believe it now because following it has deep and important ramifications, not only for ourselves and for others. And it's demonstrably better than following myths and misinformation, however compelling, however comforting, and however much aligned with your existing worldview they may be. There may be more comfort in not looking at what the CDC says, because again, it's cautious and it's nuanced. And it appears that, you know, for, for those who are contrarians, they have certain beliefs that, why should I, why should I trust this person? And, and often I think, and this is probably their psychological dimensions of this that, that you could probably address, but there seems to be some, some that, that if I've been if I've trusted authority and been disappointed before, I begin to challenge and question everything. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's sort of inherent in a lot of people. And often this, this does happen even with, with authorities, with governments, with, with people that, that have at times misled people. However, we, in situations like this, we really have to be good at distinguishing and discerning between, you know, we, we are flooded with information today. We have the internet, it's unprecedented to have access to this much information that we all do. Mm -hmm. What's really important in light of all of the information that's coming at us is the ability to be able to distinguish between information that is helpful and useful and credible. And that 
information that isn't. And that's why you and I have both said we are not uh, epidemiologists, not biologists. We don't have the necessary knowledge to be able to understand this thing. But we do try to, we strive to find the best available information for, from the people that have the most knowledge that can guide us and help us. Mm-hmm. That's what we try to do. Yeah, and the, you, know, you mentioned the authorities are not always going to be right. They never are. And that's, it, it goes back to this notion of recognizing human beings are fallible in all aspects of life. So the authorities are, aren't always going to get it right. Of course, projections um, are going to be sometimes all over the place because the projections are affected by what we do. If we don't do anything, the spread could be this much. If people take extreme measures, the spread could be this much. So projections are there to give us a model or an understanding, not to give us some absolute truth that for sure this will happen. Um, but of course, people will let us down sometimes. They're not always going to be right. And we have to, again, accept that if we think someone is the expert on this, they know the most, they'll be wrong sometimes, but they'll be wrong less than others, they'll have the best information. If you were on a plane and it was crashing, you wouldn't be like, well, you know, sometimes pilots make mistakes, so anyone go try to fly this thing. But who has the most flight experience, who has been trained in this, who knows it the best? And yeah, they still might, the plane still might crash, but they, you're trusting that they will be the one that is most likely to bring you to safety. And so... With these things, it's the same. They might be wrong sometimes. Um, I was also thinking of this analogy of, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, things are going to get better in 20 years if you look back 50 years from now. Right now, if you're buying a car, you're going to want to buy the safest car for now. In 100 years from now, they'll probably have cars a thousand times safer than the one you'll drive today. But you'll still drive the best one you can drive today to protect yourself and whatever it is that you're protecting yourself. So we have to go with the best that we have, knowing it's not some capital T truth, but it's the best we can do at this time. And also have faith that those people know more than just some person. I see a lot of people posting videos saying, I don't really think it makes sense the way they're talking about it because, and they're just some person who's sharing their kind of instincts. And we know that there's so many things that we misunderstand that don't, that are a little counterintuitive. So the way things spread, the way virus works, Mm -hmm. the people that are affected, you know, there's so many things that to the lay person might not make sense because it's hard for us to comprehend. Just like sometimes physicists will talk about things and it's just like, I don't really get it, but we have some faith in them that they understand it better than us and they can send a spaceship to to the moon. So we kind of trust that they have some understanding of things we don't get. But sometimes if they explain it to you, like, that doesn't make sense. Shouldn't it just like come back this way or why does it orbit in that way? But we might not understand it. So Yes, you, we have to think for ourselves, but there are some areas where the best we can do is turn to an expert. That's why we go to a, a doctor. You don't just say, I'm going to figure out this sickness myself. You say, the doctor might know. And do doctors get it wrong? Sometimes, of course they do. But we trust that they will be the best to help us, to give us the best chance of doing better. And so in this case, we want to turn to the experts who know more and I hope will have faith and trust in what they're telling us and follow them because it could save or actually will save millions of lives if we do that. Well, we can imagine that your child is next to you and and needs urgent help to deal with an emergency. You have a physician, an expert, let's say emergency physician, and you have someone who's a layperson. In that urgent situation, now look, that emergency doctor may, be, uh, may have some incorrect beliefs. Uh, they may be biased. They may be in their own silos and have certain worldviews. But between that person and someone who is a non-expert, you choose the emergency doctor, despite its flaws, despite the fact that the science that he's aware of may evolve and change in the future. That's the best we know right now. And in an urgent, immediate, sensitive situation, that's who we must turn to. The problem with how we 
take in information, as you said, is often the, the scientific information, the information that we need is not packaged in a way that is aligned with how we're generally throughout evolutionary history have received information. Right? So we leave for, for our minds evolved in a time in which we lived in bands of 100 to 150 people. And the way that information spread is through stories. Right? That's how information got passed down. And we still gravitate towards that. So someone can bring out really credible scientific statistics about what we must do. And often what will be even more compelling and engaging than that, that information that is much more useful to us is a story about someone that experienced something, an anecdote. Those things stick out mm -hmm. for us. That's why people show, you know, there's videos or pictures of people who have been affected. That affects people more than hearing statistics. They're not as affected. And we know that that uh, happens in a lot of um, different ways that um, there's that, uh, you know, one person starving is a tragedy. Yeah. A million starving is a statistic or something like that. But we get less emotionally affected by that, which makes sense because in our uh, psychology, we were affected by things we could see and would do something about. Someone was, our next door neighbor was hurting or someone in our tribe or village, whatever you want to call it, was in need of something. We felt that pain. We felt that compassion. We acted mm -hmm. on it. But some, you know, story about it, just words, it might not affect us the same way. But, you know, and going back to what I was saying before about things that are sometimes counterintuitive, I think what also impacts something like this uh, is that what's happening is very much largely invisible. That's right. You know, the spread of this is, uh, you know, I, you know, you interact with someone like, I just gave it to them or they gave it to me. Is that, it just doesn't seem real. Like, how is that happening? But that's how these things spread. Or I touch something and I touch my face or, you know, whatever it might be. It just seems very, it's hard for us to understand. And that's how it's always been throughout history before they, it was so hard for them to understand germ theory and different things related to, you know, how bacteria and microbes and things can cause diseases because they couldn't see them. They thought it was visible things because that's what makes sense to us is something we can see. Something invisible is a lot easier to think maybe it's fake or made up or, you know, the way, way they're talking about it is too extreme because we're like, what do you mean if I go to the, you know, this place, it's likely to spread. We're just going to, you know, an event. Why would that spread there or going to my church or temple or whatever other gathering? Uh, that's another thing we can talk about people, um, when religious beliefs or superstitions can coincide with the, the science and the information. Yeah. But I think the invisibility of what's going on, unfortunately, can further uh, add fuel to this fire of misinformation and having a hard time believing what you hear because you just think, you know, I can't see it, so how could it be real? That's a really good point. And in fact, it's much easier to get people to rally around a, a common enemy, one that you can see. So it's why they've even kind of... Um, said like the war on cancer, something like that, or, mm -hmm. or, or war on drugs. When you have something that is, um, like you said, an enemy that you really can't see, it's hard to get angry at a virus, right? We have a lot of frustration about it, but it's much easier to rally people around and say, it's, yeah, it's this ethnic group, mm -hmm. and this is the reason, and this is who we can blame. Because again, that touches on something very primal, an invader, an outsider that is imposing something upon us. But being able to create a sense of cohesion and create... Uh, a unified rally of people around something that is an invisible force, an invisible destructive force that we really don't have anything in us in, in a very deep and primal way that says this is something that I can um, build uh, a coalition around. It's much more difficult. So, so if this were something that were an invader, an outsider, a country that was causing this type of destruction, I have no doubt that people would have no trouble rallying around the cause of fighting this invader fighting this country.
but because it's a it's a virus, uh, it doesn't have that. Especially as you said, it's invisible. It's not even something we can see. It's it's mm-hmm. difficult to intuitively understand this, and because it's fraught with that type of uncertainty, um, we are more prone to look for ways to alleviate that uncertainty and alleviate the anxiety that, that triggers. Mm-hmm. And and so clear uh, examples of what really is going on uh, that that's spoken with some level of conviction and confidence is really appealing. There's some, mm-hmm. there's some, uh, something very enticing. About yeah. That. That's, and that's one of the, you know, there's obviously the conspiracy theories that are going around that it's, you know, some ev- evil plan of some sort, but there's also the opposite side, which is we have nothing to worry about. They're making it seem like a big deal and nothing is happening. You're going to be fine. And that, as we've talked about, of course, is going to garner a lot of attention because we're looking for comfort. You know, we're freaking out something bad. No, actually nothing bad is happening. Mm-hmm. Everything's okay. They're blowing this That's out right. of proportion. No one's even getting injured or hurt or whatever it might be. And of course, people are going to want to hope that's true. We can understand that, but it might not be the reality. And people are definitely flocking to those types of messages because it gives them that comfort when in fact the reality might be something more serious. And we always see this, that people like to be the one uh, who's cool and calm and doesn't care. And we also mm-hmm. see this in things like the bystander effect. So there's smoke coming out of a building or someone is getting beat up and we're seeing it. And because other people aren't responding, one of the things that plays a part, there's diffusion of responsibility, other things going on. But there's also this sense that I don't want to be the one that thinks something is going on when something isn't. And especially mm-hmm. this might even be more true for males that always want to be cool under pressure or that we don't get flustered by something. It's like, oh, it's nothing to worry about. I don't care. And even there's reports of, uh, especially younger people going out in public saying, I'm not social distancing. I'm not afraid mm-hmm. of this thing. And like trying to be tough about it. Yeah. Um, like, you know, they're like, they're beating something up when it's a virus. And, and we'll talk about probably in the next segment about how you might think it doesn't affect you, which probably it does anyway. But w- when we're doing things for other people, the altruism and kindness that comes into play and how sometimes people don't want to do something to help others um, is also showing itself with this whole crisis where maybe you yourself might not think you're vulnerable, but you could help protect someone else by slowing the spread um, and what we're doing and not doing related to that. So let's go to another commercial break. Again, I'm joined by my brother, Parham. Uh, We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, So talking with Parham about different um, issues related to coronavirus, not itself from the virus itself, because we're not the experts on that, but some ideas or thoughts on uh, information spreading, which can be related to this. And you mentioned before the piece, uh, before the break about um, how people are acting and wanting to have a common enemy. And so something we've seen in the United States, for example, is a spike in crimes against Asian Americans, Mm -hmm. because there's an association between the virus came from China. So, you know, they're somehow creating this, as you said, this common enemy becomes they're the cause and it's something external, the virus, we can't see an attack in a way that that we can visually experience, but the people we can. And so I hope if you're listening that you, I think you can understand that connection happens in a way automatically in your brain of virus came from China. Chinese people bad or Asian people bad in some way might happen to in an automatic way, but we can challenge that and realize, okay, that's just a reaction that's not really meaning anything uh, and is meaningless and it's unfair to hate and show any kind of um, negativity towards someone who's completely 
uh, not responsible for what we're going through and that we want to have a common enemy and we want to have a way to outlet that anger and frustration we're going through, but they're not the people who deserve it. No one deserves it. And so uh, I think it's very unfortunate that we're seeing that, but I'm not so surprised uh, at the same time. I'm not surprised. And also, I think it's just, um, I think it's futile. I think it's a waste of time to uh, <clears throat> to put our information, our, our emphasis on, we need to find someone to blame. It's what we do. It's what human beings will do is, is there's a problem and we, we inherently want to pin the blame on someone. Um, and, and certainly there are blameworthy parties here. But I think the situation is so urgent right now that the most important thing to do is just take measures, prophylactic measures to protect yourself and protect others. Mm-hmm. Rather than to think about, well, who do we blame and who's really the person that should be the culprit here? And oftentimes um, these things can, can have even more of a persuasive appeal in moments where we're feeling this level of pain and crisis mm-hmm. and we're frustrated and we're angry and there's, there's a lot of anxiety around it we're more prone to, to want someone to come in and say, you know what, here's the person whose fault it is. It gives us some sense of comfort to have our anger directed at some person or some groups of people. And I think we need to just resist that temptation, especially since I think right now what we're facing is an interesting test for humanity, right? Because we're seeing that the people that are most at risk are the most vulnerable in our population. The elderly, those who are immunocompromised, those who are facing certain medical conditions, those who are already quite frail and, and fragile in some ways. And it's our job, even if we're not necessarily ourselves likely to um, you know, be killed by this virus, our actions are hugely you know, affecting others in our population. In fact, those who are most vulnerable, those who are most, most weak. And so it's an interesting test and I think an opportunity for some level of unity and solidarity to see that we are all coming together to protect ourselves, of course, but in particular to affect those who are most weak, most most uh, most at risk, mm-hmm. and um, I think that we should we should embrace that side of it and see it as an opportunity. I think for some level of cohesion. You know, we, more and more we were talking about this. We're more uh, siloed, and and things have become more individualized, more personalized. The way we consume information is much more personalized than it has been in the past. Um, the information that we see, we have. You know, volumes and volumes of content when it comes to books, when it comes to movie, when it comes to how we consume media. It used to be much more, um, much more homogenous. We used to have a few opportunities, a few places we could go to consume information. And now it's very, very personalized and, and unique to us. And so we've, we've, we have less of a camaraderie and a cohesion that maybe existed in past times. This to me has been a little bit of a wake up where we see people really having the opportunity to come together. We really do have one common enemy here, which is this, this pandemic and, and preventing it. And the only way we can confront it is not through our own actions, but through the actions of us as a collective unit. Mm-hmm. It only will be effective if people come together and, and behave in a way, co- you know, in, in cohesion with each other, unified with each other to, to solve it. Otherwise you can do everything in your will. But if others are not also doing the same thing, if you can't, you know, um, persuade and inspire others to do that as well, it's not going to be effective. Sure. And that's, in this case, uh, the people who are vulnerable are, certain people. And I think you're right. We can come together and we hopefully will and should. And we'll talk about how people sometimes think, well, it doesn't affect me. So I don't need to do anything about it. I'm not quote unquote at risk. Um, but in general, we it's a hopefully a wake up call to life in general. There's people that are suffering in different ways all the time that might not affect you. And you think, well, I don't care about you know hunger. I have enough food. Or I don't care about this disease. It doesn't affect me. Or I don't care about this group's rights, I'm not one of those people. And so it doesn't affect me. And I, I, I cut that uh, quote from Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, 
a threat to justice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So it's that feeling that being aware of everyone and that togetherness and that common humanity and that we are all interconnected um, is something that I would hope people become more and more aware of because it's very easy just to think about what affects me and, okay, if it doesn't affect me, I don't care if people die or people are sick or people suffer. And so in this case, there are specific groups that are more vulnerable, but I, I hope it also can remind people to be aware of when other people are vulnerable to something else and that we can do something about it, even if it doesn't affect you to do something about it. You know, we can help in a way. And I don't know why I thought of this. It's so different, but I, I've talked about how when I watch the marathon and it goes by my apartment, sometimes I cry when people are clapping for people because they're clapping for people they don't know just to try to support them. So that feeling of just supporting someone you don't know, you're not going to get anything back from it directly, just caring for someone else. There is a nice kind of altruism to that, to just giving care to give care just to help someone you don't know. And so Hopefully we can see that as the world, obviously, in a cliche way, gets smaller, the more interconnected we can see each other, to see that when you're someone else is suffering, you, you feel that pain in the way that you want to do something about it and don't just think, well, if it doesn't affect me, who cares? I don't need to care about this. Yeah, no, absolutely. And there's there's the, the common humanity here is is spelling out even in, in economic decisions people are making. If you think about people who are going out and hoarding items, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think what ends up happening when people are under a certain level of psychological distress is, um, and a level of uncertainty is they want to control some element of what's going on. And by purchasing and hoarding a bunch of items and storing them and stocking them up in our house, people feel like they're doing something, even if it's largely an ineffective act. Mm-hmm. And, and with things that are, it's important that the masses have things like hand sanitizers and soap and other things, you having all of the soap in the world in your house is not going to prevent you from spreading this disease to anyone or from so, getting this disease from getting this disease if other people can't wash their hands you'll get it from them so you would want to disperse this far and wide mm-hmm. so so the idea of, of hoarding and, and taking things and, and being opportunistic in moments like this has a has a faulty sort of logic to it inherent yeah. to what you're doing because again there's the network effects piece of this the the only way that you can protect yourself is by these things being widely dispersed mm-hmm. and by others taking the same actions by others having access to the same information you know democracy fails when people fail to have accurate information about what's going on in the world and failing to have knowledge. And that's when these things can fall apart and crumble. Mm -hmm. So people having access to the most up-to-date and most important information is crucial to your health and safety, not just you having it, but as many people as possible having that information. Mm -hmm. And the same thing goes for, for things that are prophylactic measures that are outside of the realm of ideas, but just in protective measures we take to protect ourselves and to protect others. That's the only way something like this, it's it's a really, to me, interesting test for humanity, Mm -hmm. what we have here. And I think an opportunity an opportunity for some level of us kind of unifying in a way that maybe we haven't for many, many years now. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think it's um, obviously with this uh, situation, it's bringing up, we've talked about the fear and the uncertainty. So it creates a, 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 a scarcity mindset for a lot of people. There's not going to be enough, what's going to happen. And so that's shifting people into overdrive. And unfortunately, we've seen people being a lot more um for lack of a better word, greedy at times, making sure they have so much, even if it's too much, and not being concerned about anyone else, which is what happens uh, when we feel that there's a scarcity of things. And so we like to think of ourselves as good people, kind people, generous people, but we know that can all change when we feel that our life is in danger or there's a threat. People, unfortunately, it can bring out a nasty side of us. It can bring out good sides as well uh, when we don't have enough. And it's a reminder, I mentioned this on Monday's show, 
that it's very easy to judge people that don't have things, people who are, let's say, less fortunate in other ways. We're talking about health right now, but financially and financial security. And so they might do some things that you think are not good or right. And it's very easy to judge them and say, I would never do such a thing. I would never steal or take too much or whatever the thing is you're judging. And then we see ourselves in these situations like, whoa, like I'm doing some of those exact things and I'm way less in threat than those people are constantly facing. So it could be a good wake up call to that or people who are even refugees. People, I, I was talking to someone about this yesterday about how when we see people ourselves going through all these extreme measures and trying to figure out what to do and where can I go and where is safe to be. Imagine what it's like for people who are fleeing uh, for asylum because they're in an unsafe situation. It's very easy to judge them for that. And then coming back to this whole picture of the interconnectivity of things, oftentimes the decisions we make as countries and societies lead to people becoming refugees in other countries. And then we get upset that they're refugees, not realizing we've contributed to some of the factors that have now created that problem or the problems that they're facing. And then we somehow blame them for it. So that interconnectivity plays out in many different ways, connecting us to one another to help protect one another, take care of one another, take actions to help one another, but also hopefully that interconnectivity of seeing that common humanity that someone else is suffering in a certain way, and maybe we can understand it a bit better than we did before, hopefully, uh, and take that going forward of being there for each other in different ways. Well, yeah, I mean, in infectious diseases, viruses uh, don't um, need passports to travel. Mm -hmm. They don't look at borders. Um, they uh, are completely um, dispossessed of any of those notions. And so <clears throat> what we see is that <clears throat> we have something that is not um, in any way subject to those sort of biases or, or prejudices that we have. This is truly something universal. It is truly something that affects us uh, within our borders, regardless of how much we, we protect and erect borders or walls around what we have, not to get political about it, but really it's something that is, there are only um, so many measures we can take that are about sort of protecting the homeland and letting things be chaotic around the world. It really is a global problem that requires global cooperation. Um, and you know, you, you mentioned this idea of scarcity, which is a mindset that we all are, are prone to potentially have. And if you, you know, by one definition, economics really is about the, the division of scarce resources. That's really fundamentally what economics has been. And this kind of was led in large part by um, uh, Malthus, Malthus's idea of how population is continuing to grow. His observation from long ago that, that, that populations grow um, exponentially, but resources grow geometrically. And so this is going to ultimately lead to a problem where we can, cannot provide for all. And so overpopulation was the key, key problem that he had. Of course, this was based on a miscalculation. Um, populations do go, grow exponentially, but that begins to subside at some levels, as we see today. Um, and resources are not necessarily always going to be expanding geometrically. There's all kinds of measures that can make them expand at much, much higher rates. And also, it's, it's led to sort of principles around economics that are more now about less of a model of scarcity and more of a model of abundance. How can we expand what we have available to us right now so that all everyone gets more? There's more to divide up rather than thinking about a fixed pie and a fixed amount and seeing the world as zero sum. Uh, zero sum mindset says that there's, you know, the only way that I can gain is if others lose. Uh, a positive sum mindset or a mindset based on abund abundance which is fundamental to a lot of the principles in economics that we, we observe today, is based on something that is, is far from that, but there's still something, something instinctive about this notion that the only way that I can get ahead is if others have less, because there's a fixed pool of resources, 
And the only way that I can get more of that is if others, by definition, must be receiving less of. And so I think challenging that mindset is is key, not only to solving this this particular pandemic, but just to solving global problems more broadly. Mm-hmm. I think it's a mindset that I hope will begin to shift to see that um, us having more is not necessarily dependent on others having less. In fact, it's yeah. quite the reverse. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, so there's multiple layers to that. One is the idea that something affects other people won't affect me, we know uh, is not true almost always. It always, we are so interconnected in so many different ways from the environment to people to issues. I sometimes, in a way, jokingly think this, but you know, a lot of people might not care about taking care of neighborhoods that are impoverished. Mm-hmm. But if they take a wrong turn and end up in that neighborhood on accident, now all of a sudden they wished we did more to help those That's people right. because now their own they might feel like their own you know, safety is at stake. Right. And so we are very interconnected and we can't, we, you know, we'd like to think things don't affect us, but they do. The scarcity mindset, it's, you know, we have to be also mindful. It's easy to say, don't think this way because these things happen on an automatic emotional level. It's not a, let me, how do I want to think about this? We react. There's not enough toilet paper. I have to get toilet paper. If I don't have it, you know, what's going to happen? I don't know, but we start to freak out. It hits in an emotional way and we think, it's not going to affect, you know, I want to make sure I'm okay. Who cares about everyone else? But in that overall mindset, as you mentioned, that scarcity versus abundance, I actually saw someone who's interesting to me. They said, you know what? Don't worry about having enough food. You know, someone talking to people in the United States, we're going to have enough food. We have more than enough food, mm-hmm. which sounds really nice. But then I was hearing it. I'm like, there's people that go hungry to sleep in the United States every day normally. So if we have more than enough food for everyone, why the, it's interesting that not everyone i shouldn't say interesting it's kind of it's very sad yes. that not everyone is getting food when we know we have enough so we say that to placate the masses and of course i don't want to make it this some kind of like class warfare type of a thing but when things start to affect wealthier people um, it becomes much more of an issue than if just poor people are being affected because things like hunger starvation and lack of medical care are things that people are dealing with every day in america but also around the world Um, but it doesn't really get that emergency crisis type of an attention and reaction Uh, but we see that we do have enough of everything as you mentioned i think it's very important those there are miscalculations to think there isn't enough uh, of things Um, and so everyone can be okay and yet we live in a world where not everyone is okay on a daily basis so hopefully this crisis it could last Uh, months you know you hear different projections Uh, it's going to last some time but hopefully it'll be resolved and we get back to some kind of normal but as you mentioned i hope we'll carry some of these things we've learned there'll be some positive lessons learned about the interconnectivity about taking care of one another about being there one another how we have to come together globally at every level together to help everyone and if something affects any of us it's affecting all of us and we should care absolutely i think it's just it's one example of how interconnected we are, what's happened with this, with this really, really unfortunate and, and deadly virus that we're all confronting, is that we truly are, in, are very, very interconnected in a way that something happening in a continent far away, uh, we can't just um, sort of immuni- immunize ourselves from those things. And that's economically, I mean, you know, we are in some ways, one have said we've been at a, in a war, an economic war with, mm-hmm. with China, the United States being we. And in fact, you know, if the Chinese economy crumbles or if the Chinese people are suffering, it does have ramifications for us living right here in Los Angeles. I mean, it's not something that we can just say that, you know, that, that means we've won mm-hmm. or that means that we have now uh, went ahead. The U.S. economy is highly, highly dependent on what's happening within the borders of another country that is seen as our, in some ways, at least on an economic terms, an enemy, right? And, and I think just seeing the world as, as, as friends and enemies is itself just a very sort of um, 
simple-minded logic to use. Mm-hmm. We're, we're all in some ways, uh, obviously, there are things that are scarce resources. There are things that in which what we have is in some ways contingent upon some levels of rivalry and competition. But on the whole, and in general, the suffering of others around the world affects each of us in a very tangible way, not just in a psychic and emotional way, but it affects us in a very tangible way. Mm-hmm. In societies in which there's vast, vast levels of income inequality, there's more violence, there's more mental illness, levels of happiness are lower, levels of health are lower, and that's across the board, not just among the poor and those who are impoverished. So income inequality, even as a, as a measure within borders, affects all of us. And I think global income inequality, which is con- has exacerbated by some measures, um, also we're, we're, we should be very aware of and cognizant of the fact that it's affecting all of us, not just those who are disadvantaged by that. And even the, you know, the way you're talking about the economic wars that are there clearly is coming from a scarcity mindset as well. That, and the mindset that you know, people are going to, uh, everyone is against one, everyone is your enemy. So if they overpower you, they're going to crush you and ruin you or take over you and maybe even kill you. Um, and hopefully we move away from that, realizing there's not a need for that. It didn't serve us well to have that type of a mindset. And I know it maybe sound like it's like a utopian view that everything is so peaceful and calm, but I don't think it's that outlandish to think in that way. And, um, you know, we can move towards that and recognize that. And as you said, there's a common humanity that's coming through in this. It's very unfortunate that we're going through this, but hopefully one of the effects can be recognition of that common humanity and coming together more after the fact, not just uh, to get through this difficult time. Uh, let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Um, I'm here with my brother, Parham. We've been talking about some issues more related to the spread of information, but also we've gone into some other uh, concepts and ideas related to what's going on right now around the world with the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, we hope you will listen to the uh, authorities and the experts who are telling us what we should and shouldn't do. And we're talking before the break in the last segment about when people think it doesn't affect them. So that's something I'm hearing a lot from people that I, well, I, I can't die from this which itself to me is an interesting all, yardstick. You yes. Well, you, you can, can. You but also can. even if that's your yardstick of how you're measuring something, I think that's already a problem. Right. Um, but then the other people might be affected. And so keeping that in mind, uh, I think is very important and easier said than done at times. Of course, we're going to think about ourselves first. It's going to feel different if you think it's someone else that you don't know than yourself. We can understand that. As you mentioned in the last break, our last segment, even if you think it doesn't affect you, it can uh, and somehow get back to you. Um, but caring about people that are not you, I think, is very uh, interesting and brings up these themes of altruism and uh, kindness. And of course, when we're feeling more threatened, it's harder to feel altruistic. You know, that's going to happen. If you don't have money, it's going to be less likely you're going to be charitable and donate money. But if you have more, it's easier for you to to be, you know, show as being more charitable. So this is having big impacts on people and what they're doing and who's deciding to get involved and not involved, uh, unfortunately. And we hope that we'll keep in mind that if someone is being hurt, we hope we will all care about that and do what we can to protect them. Absolutely. And, you know, in moments of high stress, in moments of high anxiety, uh, let's say in in war-torn areas, where thankfully we here in in the United States have not confronted moments like that uh, for, for quite some time now. But in those moments, that's when people tend to move towards often mindsets of scarcity. 
right? Like high levels of stress, high levels of anxiety, high um, moments where people feel like their survival and the survival of their loved ones is at risk mm -hmm. and where there's a lot of uncertainty around things and a lack of safety. That's when we move towards a mindset of scarcity as opposed to a mindset of abundance, which usually is something that begins to come about in societies that have had some semblance of peace, some semblance of, uh, of order, um, rule of law. That's where we see more of an abundance mindset. But, but right now, we are most, I think, vulnerable to, to have our, I guess, somehow selfish interests uh, take hold and a sense that I need to protect my own and I need to protect my own things and at the, at the expense of others. And again, as we mentioned before, what we're confronting here is not something that you siloed by yourself and taking actions that are about sort of selfish hoarding measures is going to protect you. The only way that this can be protective is through uh, a level of collective action across all people. And the part that you touched on, which is the piece about just fundamental empathy, what we do affects others. And never has that been more clear than right now, where we have people that are very young and very healthy, that and the, and the statistics bear this out, they are far, far, far less at risk than someone who is older, immunocompromised, and suffering from other conditions. And yet it is our responsibility to take action and do things to protect others, to, to not protect ourselves often, but just to protect others. That's, that's the primary chief reason we're doing a lot of these things. We as a society have decided right now that largely, largely to protect those most vulnerable in our society, every one of us, even children who are not, uh, thankfully, not at risk for this, um, can spread this disease. Mm -hmm. And so schools have closed now. These children, again, and this is the United States and some other countries that hasn't happened yet, but we have decided that we are all taking action to protect all of us, of course, but particularly some of us, those who are most vulnerable. And we, you know, there's, there's a huge payoff we all get, even just psychologically, from doing things for others. You know, there was a famous paper uh, we were um, discussing previously, this, this notion of connecting money and happiness and here um, we see that um, the, 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 the article title was basically the, the, the concept that money does make us happy, we're just not spending it right. And so spending our money, our resources, our time, and our energy on others makes us very, very happy. It's actually the best thing that we can do with our money is to, to give, to spend on others, to be helpful to others. So, of course, that's done chiefly and primarily to help others, but also there's a very, very demonstrable psychological effect on our own well-being. Even our, our, our health is enhanced. Our psychological well-being is enhanced. All of these things come from helping others. This is scientifically proven. It's not just things we say to, uh, to promote a worthy cause. We're saying it even, even purely, purely selfishly. This would be a way of looking at it would be it's basically enlightened self-interest. It's enlightened self-interest. It's something that is certainly benefiting others. It comes to no benefit to you, perhaps, in some instances. And it's still very, very worthwhile to do. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that, that we'll kind of carry that and learn and realize that there's a lot that we can gain from helping. Yeah. There's a lot that we gain from helping others, even if there's no direct payoff later. It's, it's not something that's a uh, quid pro quo <laughs> or something mm -hmm. that we're giving in the hope that uh, at some point there'll be something that's paid back to us or because we'll be old one day. No, we're just doing it because it's the right thing to do. And that's it. It ends mm -hmm. there. Yeah. And even, you know, giving is... Um, 
uh, Eric Fromm talks about giving and that sometimes people say it's better to give to, than to receive because we say, oh, it's more noble because it hurts more to give. So that makes it better. Uh, but he says, actually, no, when you give, you get to feel of your own vitality and strength and feel good. You know, uh, for those of you that are not going to be affected by this or as far as get affected um, or at risk, be very grateful that you aren't that uh, at risk and hopefully give that, pay that forward to help other people. Or as much at risk. At mu- all- as much at risk, yeah. At risk as far as, um, let's say, death, for example, which is used, which less, it's affected by age and different factors. Right. You might be less at risk for uh, death. Yeah, it's probably a better way, not at risk. Less at risk is probably more accurate. Um, be grateful for that and pay that forward, you know, give that to others. And it's a reminder of compassion. And, you know, when people do compassion meditation, usually the way it works is, you start with yourself, and of course, you do have to give yourself compassion. It's very important. It's a very uh, big characteristic of mental health is having that genuine self-compassion, self-love for yourself. But then you expand it to your family, to other people, and then even to enemies or people you don't like, and then to the whole world. And you expand that, and it feels very good, that interconnectedness and recognizing that is really, first of all, I think a reality, but helps you feel much better. So you don't think of just does this affect me? But if it affects anyone, you feel that at some level. And I think that is actually good to have that um, that feeling that when others are hurt, I feel something about it. And again, it does tie into things we've talked about, abundance versus scarcity, feeling safe. If you don't feel safe, you're going to be less likely to feel that way. But it's hopefully recognizing that interconnectivity means that if someone is affected, I have to do my part. I'm going to have less fun, you know, for people that were worried about social distancing. I'll have less fun this week, this month, however long it is, and it will save other people's lives. And they don't owe me anything back. Right. Uh, when we live in a society, it's something we have to, in some way, take for granted. When you live with other people, there is an inner connectivity and interdependence that is there. You live with someone, all of a sudden, you can't do everything you want to do every moment, but that's part of living with someone. And we live in this world together, and it's having that mindset that, yes, we're all affected by each other, we hopefully all will care about each other. It's not something about just looking at me. Does it affect me? What do I want? Uh, and what do I care about? And if it doesn't affect me, why should I stay at home so that someone else might not get sick or something like that? It's a very selfish mindset and it's going to leave you, it's going to carry over in how you in, uh, interact with others, even in relationships. If your mindset is just, well, let me be, think about how I'm going to feel after this or how I care about this. If you're a uh, in a relationship or if you're a parent, especially, mm-hmm. you can't have that mindset. The mindset has to be about consideration of the other as well. Well, I think the moment that the the act, the act of compassion or of empathy of giving becomes transactional, I think it loses, it's one of those things that actually loses the very nature of what is actually intended to be done. The character of the act changes, I mm-hmm. believe. Now, imagine this, that you, if you make explicit that, let's say you go to someone's house and you have dinner. I go to your house. You make you make me dinner. You probably I, would I order. Won't do that, yeah. No. Mm-hmm. So we, I have dinner at your house, and I realize, you know, I gotta, at some point, invite Fatty over to my house and have him come here, and I kind of owe it to him. It's kind of even the score a little bit, reciprocate. But if I make that explicit, if I have you come over and say, "Hey, Fatty, remember that time you uh, you had me come over and and you uh, got me dinner," and, and mm-hmm. I'm I'm doing this now, right? Because Eat this I, or even, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm I'm kind of feeling a sense of like guilt about that, and I feel like it's it's probably my duty now to, to, to have you. So why don't you come over so I can kind of even the score there because I don't want to have this holding over me, have this sort of um, I guess psychological debt hanging over our us. And so come over and I'm 
that changes the very character and nature of what I'm doing there, mm-hmm. right? Because it's 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 characterized as something that's being done to reciprocate something that you've done. Of course, when I do it, it probably is somehow motivated by the fact that I do want to sort of give back from what you've right. given me. At some level, we're all keeping some, you know, they say we never keep track of these things, which I don't believe. If you feel like you're giving way more in a relationship that you're getting based on mm-hmm. the type of relationship it is, you might recognize that. So we're all keeping a type of score. But yeah, it's kind of like how detailed it is and how much attention you're giving to it is a problem and will interfere with, like you said, the act of kindness that is being done. Well, I think just making it explicit changes the nature of what's being done. I mean, I'll just throw one simple example that we saw on on, on Sunday. Joe Biden committed to having a female vice president. Now, I think that's a very worthy thing to do. We should have more women in positions of leadership, hopefully not just vice president, but president. This is something we should all be uh, moving towards without question. But I think it changes who he selects then is going to be seen as, in part, it was done because the person's a woman, not because they're the most qualified person to take the role. Mm-hmm. Now, there's many, many qualified people that can take that position and, and will. However, making that explicit that this is exactly what I'm going to do, I think changes the nature of what's being done there. Making that explicit kind of removes the norm of, yes, of course, we want inclusiveness and diversity, and we want to bring you know, all people into positions of high leadership, but making it that I, I'm committing to this because the person is this character think changes the nature of it. Mm-hmm. I think the same thing happens here when it comes to empathy and compassion. It needs to be done not because, oh, you know what, one day I might be old and I hope people do this for me. Well, of course that's the case. We do, of course, hope that when we're in positions of vulnerability, others will care for us and take care of us. But if that's the primary and chief motivation behind why we're doing it is because mm-hmm. somehow, some way I'm going to benefit from this long term or someone else will pay this back to me, I really think it just, it removes the character of the intent and reason why this is fundamentally sure. important in, to do. Intention is everything. Yes. And everything. I, you know, the same thing about having someone over for dinner, if it's uh, because you think they'll introduce you to some friends and that'll make you have a better social life, that's different than giving them something. So intention with everything is something we always have to evaluate in all the actions we take. And even, you know, the example you gave, if it's just done, let's say, for political benefit, this will make me look more open-minded, more woke, more feminist, and that'll improve my chances of winning. That's one thing. But if it's actually, I think this will make my ticket more balanced or, you know, a more balanced platform or, you know, it has a positive effect, that can be different. So we don't right. know exactly. We, you know, we have uh, some assumptions based on how politics tends to go. But, you know, the intention is something we always have to look at. What's my intention here? Is it someone's going to take care of me later, so I'll take care of you? Or is it I think the right thing to do um, is to take care of you? And I hope right now we all recognize that that right thing to do is to take care of one another. And sometimes the way we take care of one another is staying home, which seems weird. Usually we mm-hmm. think it's some kind of action that's proactive, putting yourself out there. Right now it's uh, sometimes being a little more inactive. Staying home is actually the best action we can take to help protect one another and ourselves. Let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Um, I'm here with my brother, Parham. We've been talking about some issues related to what's going on right now with the coronavirus regarding uh, spread of information and misinformation and also some psychological and factors from an economic standpoint about what's going on and hopefully what we do and don't do. Um, one thing we just want to reiterate, of course, as we mentioned a few times, turn to the experts and people like the CDC and individuals who are infectious disease specialists. They're the ones that can help us understand what to do and not to do and what impacts uh, things we do can have on how things spread. You maybe have heard this uh, phrase, flatten the curve, which yep. is we want to decrease the spread. 
And so they have you know, tra- charts and graphs that can chart how it's spreading. And if we do certain things, we can flatten that curve so it's not such a spike and so, so the numbers are less. Uh, but something we talked about during the break was also how we're being told to do lots of things. And this is really uncharted territory for practically everyone. Yes. So when we hear certain things that we're being asked to do, it can seem like, wait, really? I need to do, I can't leave my house or I can't do this or I can't do that. And it might seem extreme. Um, of course, sometimes better safe than sorry, but even we are in uncharted territory. So some of the things we're being asked to do might seem strange or weird or bizarre to us because we never had to do them, but we're facing something we've never faced before, which means what we do has to be to do things that we didn't do before. And you were saying this before the break that oftentimes the time to act is uh, when we, it's kind of before we think it's the right time in some way. Yeah. So for something that has the potential and it can grow it at an exponential rate and our minds are designed to think about things more geometrically. So when things grow exponentially, it, it's, the, the way that it can kind of begin to grow, I mean, 30, 30 movements geometrically is, is 1 to 30. 1 to 30, 30 doubles, 2, 4, 6, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64. 30 goes to 1 billion. So we, for 30 versus 1 billion, when it's geometric versus um, algorithmics or uh, um, um, exponential. exponential. Mm-hmm. And so the issue that we have here is at any point in time, the, the, the time that we could take the prophylactic measures, the preventative measures to prevent the stem and the growth and the spread of this disease to the point where it becomes uncontrollable is at times where it will feel too early. It will feel premature. There won't be people maybe around us that have suffered from the disease. There may not be things that have hit home quite as acutely as it has in maybe other parts of the world. And so it will feel too early to take action. And that is the only time that preventative measures can take place at moments where it feels too early. So it's this interesting sort of psychological dilemma where you need to rally people, inspire people, motivate people to do something at a time at which it will feel like it's an overreaction and it's premature because it's the only way to stem the tide of something that can then get to an uncontrollable rate, Mm -hmm. at which point even starker, deeper, more extreme measures will still be largely far, far less effective or potentially ineffective. Right, and that, I mean, even uh, personally, and just it's crazy how much things change within a week, two weeks, and right now really daily where things are changing and how we uh, view things and feel about things. But I remember thinking a couple of weeks ago, oh, I can still go do this and do that yes. or what, whatever it is. I didn't really think I need to limit life in any way. I was hearing some things about we should start thinking about not doing this or that, but it seemed too soon. It seemed, uh, you know, extreme. And uh, now I realized how naive I was to, to not recognize that threat as real and the effects it can have. And so we want to be aware of that, that it's at times going to seem too soon to seem like too much, uh, but we will hopefully listen to the experts and, and believe that they have our best interest of ourselves and the whole world uh, at heart. When they give us certain guidelines or guidance, it can feel restrictive. I talked about this on Monday also, and maybe we touched on it today, but that feeling of authority and like, oh, you're telling me I have to stay home. Like, watch me show you I'm not going to stay home and I don't need to and I'm okay. And going back to that invisible uh, effect, you know, whether you get it and even especially if you are asymptomatic, you feel like nothing happened. So I went out and I came home and they told me I can't do it and nothing happened. There's not a tangible result we see, especially an immediate one. So we feel like nothing happened. So they told me I can't go out, but I did and nothing happened. But it's recognizing the cumulative cumulative effect and again the at times what is invisible to us as far as it's microscopic of what's going on is much bigger than something you're going to be able to really comprehend in the ways we're used to responding to things 
Absolutely. And, and the issue that exists is that um, this idea that you mentioned of flattening the curve, which has been talked about uh, at length all across, um, it, it's really, really key because it's not a, even about um, how many get the disease. It's about how many get the disease at one, at one time in a very sort of rapid, accelerated pace. That's the danger. That's the risk that, that's, that's being run. And so, you know, getting the flu, people compare it to the flu sometimes, which is very misguided and very misleading. Um, the flu that causes tens of thousands of deaths in the United States per year. Yes, it does. However, if that were to be concentrated, first of all, the, risk, the, the fatality risk is significantly higher for this. We don't know exactly what it is, but it's substantially higher. But also, if we were to have that type of effect where everyone gets the flu all at once within a short span of time, our system would be overwhelmed. So we have 2.8 hospital beds per thousand people in the United States. That number is, uh, is less than even in Italy, for example, which is dealing with what it is now. And so that's really the issue. It really is about sort of taking these preventative measures when it seems like it may be to some, it appears too soon. For those who are not the scientists who know, who that they believe we acted far too late in the United States, for example, and in many other countries. You know, the, the action that we take, the sooner that it's taken, the less dramatic, drastic action that needs to be taken. So if we had, in the United States, for example, acted several weeks earlier or months earlier, we would have been able to do far, far less at testing kits and various other measures that would be far less extreme than what we're doing now. If we don't act now and we choose to sort of respond days from now, weeks from now, the response will need to be more drastic, more extreme, and have deeper consequences and significantly more fatalities as a result. So acting too soon is the right time to act. Taking the preventative measures where it appears to be before this is really accelerated is the only time this can actually be prevented. And so um, we, again, this invisible threat, this threat that seems still in some ways far removed from our personal lives and the lives around us, where even if someone has the coronavirus, sometimes they're asymptomatic, it makes it seem like, well, this isn't so bad. This is just an infectious disease. We deal with infectious disease annually. This is categorically different, and it's important that we take it seriously. And it's important that we, again, not listen to me or Fatty, listen to the authorities. Mm -hmm. the experts. They have all of the guidance that we need, and there are fundamental core principles that there is uniform agreement across on what we must do, and that's that's who we need to listen to. Yeah, and it, hopefully we'll all, we are all in it together, and you mentioned that before, this unifying impact, unfortunately, over something so negative and having a lot of damaging effects and literally taking lives and causing lots of other uh, negative impacts. But I hope we will recognize that too. There's a solidarity of it's kind of strange of everyone being at home and you already see people posting things of group FaceTimes that they're doing together now that they're all uh, quarantined or self-quarantining or doing different things. And uh, it, it's not the same as interacting face-to-face. -face. I was actually ta talking to this uh, someone earlier, but imagine doing this 40 years ago. We'd be so isolated. Thankfully, with technology, we can stay That's right. at some level connected, different type of than face-to-face. Um, and so hopefully we feel that solidarity. We're going through this together. We'll get through this together. Again, it's a weird feeling, but like, you know, let's all stay home together. It doesn't seem like such an action, but it does inconvenience us in lots of ways. People are being affected, of course, financially, some much more than others. And that's why the government is in all countries, including the United States, is trying to figure out what to do to uh, affect the overall economy, but then also people who are more economically vulnerable. We've talked about vulnerable medically, but also economically. Some people are more vulnerable than others, and that's something uh, that has to be looked at. But hopefully we can band together and recognize that if we act swiftly and act together, we can definitely have a huge impact 
on the negative impact and actually making things go back to quote unquote normal, whatever it'll be sooner by what we do more immediately now. Yeah, I mean, this is clearly a, uh, a, a drastic, dramatic collective action problem, uh, not only, you know, within the United States, but globally, right? So it requires the only way to stem this and to, to prevent this from spreading is through global cooperation. So there are lessons learned, for example, in China, in Italy, and other countries that we must have. There's lessons that will be learned in the United States that need to be shared with others. This is a moment at which it's really about just cooperation. And it's, again, a place where for example, notions of the free market, which in many, many contexts have been extraordinarily helpful. So capitalism and free markets have led to huge, huge growths in um, uplifting people out of poverty and creating jobs and, and economic growth that, is, that has benefited many. Perhaps the greatest leap in, in human well-being and human happiness has been through these various, this economic growth that we've experienced. It's been accelerated over the last several decades and for you know now several hundred years. This is really, really important and not to be diminished or undermined, but for problems like this, it's simply out of context. The free market's not going to solve this. This is a massive collective action problem that requires a strong government. It requires cohesion, not only within one government, but all governments, cooperating and working together. It's the only way something like this can be addressed. And so we just see that, you know, even ideological notions of, of when we should be libertarian and free market oriented and when we should be sort of socialists, it, at some point, you know, there are certain issues, certain things that one philosophy or ideology is simply out of place. And, and not aligned with what's what's demanded and what's needed. And right now, it's really a time they say, you know, pandemics make more people socialists than anything else because we really need this to be something that we uh, work on as one cohesive whole. It's the only way something like this can be addressed. And perhaps the one, you know, payoff, we, we always want to think of, you know, th these things even that can be very, very damaging and destructive might have some positive outcomes of them. And maybe this is, as you mentioned, the solidarity and the unity that we feel, mm -hmm. that really um, your behavior and your well-being affects me. And this is across not only our cities, not only our countries, but our world. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we just about have to wrap up. So hopefully we'll all do what we can, which oftentimes might be doing less, staying home more, uh, isolating in different ways. You do see... Uh, I think Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, he said his mom would tell him whenever you see something bad happening, always look for the people that are helping. There's always people helping. So, of course, we did touch on greed and different things that have been showing up, but you also see incredible acts of kindness and humanity and people trying to help one another, supporting each other um, in various ways. So hopefully we'll continue to do that and bring out that kindness. And also wanted to lastly thank all the uh, medical workers around the world who yes are really at the front lines of this and risking at times their lives or their own safety and health to try to treat those who are already suffering and to try to reduce the impact it has in the people that it does reach. So always grateful to those individuals, but especially during this time, who are helping to protect and take care of those and treat those who are already suffering and to try to minimize the, the impact it has. And we have to do our part to help them by not going out there to reduce the number of patients that have to go to them. And again, all, all interconnected and we all can help one another in that way. So um, sending our love and regards to everyone during this time. We know it's also almost the Persian New Year and we all tend to think of this as a time to celebrate and see one another and kiss each other on uh, both cheeks. And I think lots of those things are going to have to change, unfortunately, this year, but still wishing everyone all the best for this year and going forward in all ways, but also in dealing with this very challenging time. So big thank you to my brother Parham for joining me today and uh, our regards to everyone out there and thank you to 
Bazala here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulaqui. Have a wonderful day.